0: How many of you like New Year's resolutions? <laughs> I've ever, have you ever noticed that people are, it's, it's just a polarizing topic, okay? So I'm not gonna try to convince you that you have to have New Year's resolutions. So for some of you that break into rashes, when you think about that, uh, just take a deep breath. That's not what I'm gonna do. Um, but I'm gonna encourage you towards something else, that because of who Christ is, now, and what we've been talking about through the book of Hebrews, and even as we last week celebrated Christmas, and Zechariah's prophecy about who, who the Messiah was, in fact, that, that he was coming, and that he would redeem his people, he'd become the horn of salvation, all of those things point towards the fact that, and this is what we've been talking about in Hebrews, that that. Jesus is our hope and comfort. For those of you who like to make resolutions, be encouraged. You're not being judged whether or not you adhere to those resolutions. For those of you who are fearful or perhaps you get discouraged about making resolutions, can I just nudge you a little bit? Look to Christ. He's accomplished it all. And however it is that you want to move on in your spiritual journey with Christ, then make a resolution or don't. I don't care. Um, Now, for me, I I like to read resolutions of other people, and I make a few myself, and I'm just like you. Uh, Sometimes... I keep those resolutions, and other times I don't. Praise God that my salvation isn't dependent on it. But one, one of the men uh, that I like to look to usually every year is Jonathan Edwards. How many of you know Jonathan Edwards? Okay. I, you know, he came up with 70 resolutions, not all in one year, over the course of several years. But I like this one, and it should be up on the screen there. He says, resolve, That's how he starts all of his resolutions. Resolved to study the scriptures so steadily, constantly, and frequently as that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. Um, now, Puritans, especially guys like Edwards, they use a lot of words to to come up with a simple truth. And he was resolved to study the word of god now whether you're a navigator and you like to use the five fingers of reading the word studying the word memorizing the word meditating on it or applying it or if you're like edwards and you want to put a lot of words to that it doesn't matter nobody really cares but i would simply say to you can we determine that we would be people of the word in 2024 whether that's a Bible reading plan, whether that's just simply saying, before I do anything else, I'm going to open God's Word. Perhaps that's first thing in the morning. Perhaps that's at lunchtime. Perhaps that's before you go to bed. It, again, it doesn't really matter as long as you're saturating your mind in the Word of God. Because it's through God's Word, His truth, which establishes a foundation of knowledge, catch this, that we then act upon in life. I just don't go out and do whatever I want to or feel like. Well, maybe I do sometimes, but it usually doesn't end up well. I want to take God's truth, and I want it to saturate my mind. And I know there's a lot of things competing for our attention. The reason that Edwards and guys like him could come up with 70 resolutions and probably remembered them all as he didn't have the temptation to check Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat all the time, okay? I mean, he, they didn't have that, right? And there's a blessing in technology, uh, but if, if you're so inclined, you can go back and uh, you can't really see that uh, link, but on Desiring God, uh, there's, if you Google Desiring God, Jonathan Edwards, all of his resolutions will come, and you can read through them if you're so inclined, okay? So the pressure is off. No New Year's resolutions if you don't want to. If you're one that loves them, make as many as you want. Go big or go home, right? I mean, we don't know what this year holds, uh, uh, you didn't come here to hear about New Year's resolutions. We're going to study the book of Hebrews, so turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. I'm very excited about this because we're talking about the glory of Christ, our hope and comfort. Just by way of review, we've anchored ourselves on a few key truths. One is that we want to encourage one another, stimulate one another, prod each other along sometimes. So they're not, we're not a people that has gospel FOMO. Right, Jasper, we don't want to have this, this missing out of what the gospel is, right? That'd be very bad. So we look at texts like Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16 that says, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us what? Hold fast our confession. Now keep that phrase in mind. For we did not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He gets it. He knows us. But one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Our high priest is our perfect mediator. He stands between us and God the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because God the Father is perfectly holy. And his justice demands that my sinfulness be held account for, and it's only through Jesus that we can stand before God. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that points us to Christ in our life. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Texts like that point us to what J.C. Ryle said, and you've heard this before, so this is review do not glory in your own faith your own feelings your own knowledge or your own diligence glory in nothing but who Christ and we've made application of this book often and one of the great applications at least that I come back to over and over again is that we do hold fast but sometimes we think about that in terms of how strong I am. Can I really hold on to Jesus? And we say, no, 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 no. That's not, that's not what the truth is. The truth is, is that Jesus holds on to me, so I hold on to my confession. We sang about that. We confessed who Jesus is. So my strength and my hope and my comfort is not in the strength of my faith. It's in what Jesus has done for me once and for all, and his faithfulness. I like the way that R.C. Sproul, okay? Uh, If you don't know R.C. Sproul, you should. Uh, he's, He's with Jesus now. But he said, we are secure not because we hold tightly to Jesus, but because he holds tightly to us. Now, going into 2024, we don't know what the next year holds, but let me tell you, there is great hope and comfort in the reality that Jesus holds on to me and to you today's text okay uh, is Hebrews 9 1 through 10 uh, two weeks ago we covered the whole chapter okay of Hebrews chapter 8 verses 1 through 13 uh, you remember that this is just a continuation of one long thought that starts way back in Hebrews chapter three you don't have to turn there but in chapter 3, verse 1, the author is building this argument that Jesus is better. He's better than angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the law. And he says, therefore, brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, So we start in Hebrews 3, 1, and we're still working through this long argument. There was a brief interruption in chapter 6 where he gives this warning. That's the man in the cage, okay, from Pilgrim's Progress. Don't get caught up in your sin. We don't want that to happen. Look to Jesus, and he's going to continue. And as we look at chapter 9, we're going to break it up into three sections, but I've I've labeled this. This is my title, okay, Uh, shadow and reality shadow and reality the shadow is the law it's the old covenant the reality is the new covenant and the person of christ that's the gospel there is no hope in the law there is all the hope in the world in the gospel so if you have a copy of scripture you can read with me hebrews chapter 9 I'm just going to be reading verses 1 through 10. Hebrews 9, verses 1 through 10. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Verse 3. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold. In which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that had budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of these things we cannot now speak in detail so if you're really interested in going back and seeing a picture of the tabernacle you go back to exodus chapter 29 through 31 okay everything that's in the tabernacle is listed there the author hebrews is saying here's a summary verse 6 these preparations having thus been made the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties "...but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people." So the priest would be in the outer part of the tabernacle, or the tent, every day, making sacrifices. Once a year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go inside... He would first make a sacrifice for his own sins. Then he would make a sacrifice for the sins of the people. That's what Zechariah was doing in the Holy of Holies we talked about last week. If you missed it, go back to Luke chapter 1. Jesus is the horn of salvation. The horns that were on the altar, they were sprinkled with blood. It was the power of Jesus' blood that we're going to sing at the end of the message that we hold our hope in. Verse 8, by this the Holy Spirit indicates, I love this, the Holy Spirit indicates, yes, he was at work in the old covenant, that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, verse 9, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings regulations for the body imposed until the time of what reformation okay now if you go to the end of this section and into chapter 10 this is this is what i want you to hear about the next three weeks okay hebrews 10:1 says this for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Okay, so there it is. Shadow and reality that the author is driving towards. Remember, as I've said often, context is always king. So we're looking back all the way to Hebrews 3.1, looking forward all the way into chapter 10. He doesn't pivot until Hebrews chapter 11 when we come into the hall of faith when he describes the men and women who lived out this hope in the future reality of the Messiah. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to what? To take away sin. This caused me to think about Luke 18. Okay? I'm studying. I'm reading. You know, sometimes the Holy Spirit kind of nudges you th- towards a text. Now, you may not remember, but Jesus tells a parable. Uh, it's a story. We don't know if the story is something he'd seen, but it's similar to other things that had taken place in the life of Christ in front of his disciples. And he tells the, the, the parable, okay, uh, of someone who thought themselves as being righteous. And he compares it to a tax collector, someone who wasn't very well liked, kind of like Matthew, everybody distrusted them you can think of people in our own society in our own arena here you go uh oh that person's on the take i don't trust that person you know and jesus says and you remember the 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 story okay is that the person who thought themselves as righteous probably the pharisees right how he looks at himself and he says man standing in front of the temple look at me and look at what i do look at how religious i am and then he compares him to the tax collector who stands off in the corner he sees his heart for what it is and what does he say woe is me because i am a sinner and jesus says who do you think is more righteous of course the pharisees thought the first guy was and jesus says no that guy who performed all these religious acts, he missed the entire point. This is what we're talking about here. Now, what occurred to me is this. Is that while we're not the recipients of the book of Hebrews, we can make a very, very practical application. In, in every text of Scripture, you want to look for what does the text mean? What's the systematic theology that's there? There's a lot of Christology here, Right? What's the biblical theology? Well, that's easy enough to see the Old and New Covenant and the comparisons, one of the big things all throughout the book of Hebrews. But the practical theology is how do I apply these big truths to my life? And, and this is what I was thinking about this week. Okay? This comes out of Luke 18 as I'm applying it here is how easy it is for me to be that stinking Pharisee. Look at me. I gave 20 years on the mission field. I come to church every week. I get to preach. I do all the religious things that other people think make me right before God. And can I just say there is nothing further from the truth. Nothing. So whether you're a vocational minister, pastor, church planner, translator, whether you're a student and you are tempted to think, you know, I get straight A's and I'm going to go to a good school and I've done everything my parents tell me to for the most part, um, it doesn't amount to a hill of beans. It means nothing. It means nothing. And it's a double-edged sword because you can think like the Pharisees did that you were a lot and you weren't, or you can just simply beat yourself up. Neither is gospel-centered. Gospel-centricity, putting the gospel in front of myself and preaching it to myself, says this. I want to identify with the tax collector who sees my sin for what it is before God. And I want to respond the way he did. But I don't need to live under a cloud of guilt. Why? Why? because because of Christ my sin has been here's a big theological word expiated okay it's been taken away so that when david cries out in psalm 51 create in me a clean heart this is an old testament saint and he was not perfect he's an adulterer he's a murderer bad guy And yet, his hope was in the finished work of the Messiah who would come. Romans chapter four said that Abraham's faith in what God would do in the future was what made him right before God, not the fact that he was a religious man. He did that because that's what was commanded in the law. But that was not the gospel. And it's so easy for us to get caught up even deceived into thinking that we are right because of our religious behavior. It's simply not the case. We are right because of the gospel. Thomas Goodwin, one of those good old dead guys, he was a Puritan. He said this, The law, the shadow, reveals to us the will of God, yet it changed us not. But the gospel reality reveals the glorious image of Jesus Christ to true believers and changes them into his image. There's the gospel. Calvin liked to tell his students there's there's three ways that you use the law. The law points us to truth, it points us to to the goodness of God. It also reveals our sinfulness and then it makes us aware of how much we need the gospel in this text we're going to divide it into three sections uh the old covenant place of worship in verses one through five then the old covenant practice of worship in verses six through ten and again we don't have time but if you want to go back exodus 29 to 31 okay great summary if if you really really like studying the tabernacle Go back to the book of Leviticus. It's fantastic. The third part, which we'll cover next week in verses 11 through 18, is the new covenant reality of worship in Christ. The focus is on worship, how it was done in the old covenant. Okay, that was chapter 8, Jeremiah chapter 31. The author quotes right out of there. And he says, there is a new covenant that is coming. Behold, declares the Lord. Verse 8, I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the old covenant, but a new one, okay? A new one. The big point here in Hebrews 9 is about the difference between the old and new covenant, specifically in worship, okay? Not just worship corporately, by the way. We're going we're to draw that in, okay, just before we finish, okay? But keep, keep that in mind. It's about worship. I like what John Piper says. He says mission exists because what? Worship doesn't. This is about getting worship right. It's about getting not just the new covenant right, but how we interact with God through Christ. This is the difference between the Old and New Covenant, specifically in worship. We see the superiority of what Jesus has done in comparison to the Old Testament Covenant. Now remember, in the Old Covenant, sacrifices had to be made over and over and over again. They couldn't possibly cover the sins of the people. In the New Covenant, Jesus comes and he dies once and for all. That's the hope of the gospel, And so today, we're just going to look at the Old Covenant place of worship and then the old practice of worship, and we're going to combine them. Okay, so two points, and we're just going to kind of seamlessly move through the text. Okay, this is all set up by texts like Exodus 25.8. Okay, God says, let them make me a sanctuary. Why? That I may dwell in their midst. The reason there was a tabernacle is it signified the nearness of God. When they were moving through the wilderness, how did God reveal himself? During the day, it was by what? Big cloud. At night, it was by what? A pillar of fire. When they settled, he says, make me a tent, make me a place where the people will look and they'll, they'll know that I am there. That's important. Keep that in mind. It's interesting too, by the way, just, just a comparison that right out of the gate when Jesus comes and he begins his ministry, uh, that changes. It's all changed. John chapter 4, okay? Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what? What we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. This is significant because the Jews knew, okay? Even a Samaritan would have known this, but the Jews went to the tabernacle. They went to the temple to worship. Now, I grew up in, in enough churches to know that for, for the most part, there's a lot of people that they only worship when they go to church on Sunday. And that's easy to fall into that because, because they acted like church was heaven, but Monday through Saturday, they were living... not like heaven it looked a little bit more like hell and so nothing's changed here okay except for in the new covenant that nearness is no longer just in a location it's with the people of god now let's look at this text and just kind of work through it okay Verse one says, "Now even the first covenant had regulations." Okay, so here's here's the regulations of worship. It was a place of holiness. This is where God was, and it was a tent. Verse two, okay, it was divided into two sections. And again, this is not exhaustive. Um, this holy place, the the some have called it the 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 outer place of the temple, basically had, according to the author of Hebrews, he lists three. There were more: a lampstand, a table. A bread of presence. Now, some of you might be familiar with this. Some of you may not. Uh, This, again, all points to the proximity of God to his people. The lampstand being the light of God. It's It's no accident that Jesus called himself the light of the world. There was a table there representing the faithful presence and provision of God. There was loaves of bread that sat on that table that were changed weekly. Again, it pointed not only to God's presence and not only to his faithful provision, but the nourishment that came from the presence of God. Now remember, we find that the priest daily went there to offer sacrifices for the people. Then it says the Holy of Holies, or the place called the Most Holy Place, verse 3. There was it divided by a curtain. Now, most people believe that in the temple at this time in, in, in the first century, okay, it was much more ornate. This wouldn't have been like Moses, but there was a veil. There was something that separated it. And only the high priest would go there on the Day of Atonement. He did that once a year. And it was there that the priest would offer a sacrifice for himself and for the people, The author lists these things that were in the Holy of Holies. A golden altar representing what? Mediation. That's where the the sacrifice could be made. The Ark of the Covenant. That was where God was. That's how he carried them from place to place. God's sovereignty and providence. Have you ever thought about that? Just as the ark of the covenant represented the presence of god to the people of israel it demonstrates his sovereignty okay his control and providence his direction of his people now that's something to hold on to and this is a shadow now we have jesus who reigns sovereignly and he dictates Everything that goes on in the universe, big picture, all the way down into the smallest details of your life and my life. Now, if that's true, if God genuinely is in control, and if you don't believe that, read Colossians 1, okay? He holds together the universe with his very word. And if he were to stop doing that, the universe would just implode. It would cease to exist. But if that's true, do we need to really get all wound up when things don't go our way? If 2024 just doesn't happen the way that we envisioned it, or the way our resolutions were all mapped out, do we have to get all up in a wad? No. Why? Well, just as the Old Testament saints under the Old Covenant saw the presence of God in the Ark of the Covenant, we can rest in the reality of Jesus Christ being with us. Real time, every day, all the time, and we're ministered to through His Spirit, the Holy Spirit. There was not only the Ark of the Covenant, but there was a golden, a golden vessel Okay, an urn okay, that was kept inside the Ark of the Covenant, and inside that, that vessel was, was, a, was a piece of manna. Okay, I have no idea how that manna lasted all that time. You ever wonder about that? Okay. I'll ask someone about that when I get to glory. But there's manna representing God's miraculous provision for his people when he drew them out of bondage in Egypt. There was not only a golden vessel, there was Aaron's staff that had budded Okay? Uh, and I don't know if you've ever spent any time that, but that represents not only God's design for the priestly line, but the supernatural work of deliverance. Do you remember when Aaron's staff budded? It was before Pharaoh. You can go back and read, read the story in the beginning of the book of Exodus. And we've talked about this before that we serve a supernatural God, He's at work in the world. We believe in a spirit world and God is at work even when we can't see him in supernatural ways. And even in the old covenant, the people of Israel saw that. But today, we can be lulled to sleep and sort of thinking, oh, we just have this sort of physical world where God's not at work. And listen, my friends, he is indeed at work. There was not only a staff there, but there were the tablets. Okay? What do the tablets represent... God's word. God's word originally given at Sinai or the Ten Commandments. And now what do we have? We have his word. His completed word. 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New, 66 total. And so we say we feed off this because God speaks to us through this. And finally, the cherubim. The cherubim, the angels. Uh, If you want to do a fascinating study, just go into your Bible software and just type in cherubim. There's just paper after paper after paper that's been written on on what the meaning of the cherubim inside the holy of holies is all about and this this is my takeaway okay uh it's all about worship okay the cherubims were there to make sure that worship was done right They were there to guard over the altar. Their wings actually covered the altar. They were there not only to worship God, but to make sure it was done in the right way. I think that Jesus is nodding towards that in John chapter 4 in his interaction with the woman. He's saying, listen, you think you know how to worship, but you don't. Because you can only worship in spirit and in truth. And so you hear me say things like, hey, get into your word, be people of the word, read your Bible, study the word. Why? Well, because it's because from that that we worship in spirit and in truth. And we just don't go along with every fad, every new paradigm, every new model that comes along. And what's faddish today will be gone tomorrow and there will be something new that will replace it. Sometimes it'll feel mysterious. other times it'll just feel very gnostic, like there's some special knowledge there. There is nothing new. It's right here, and it's the gospel. Mm-hmm. Hebrews chapter eight, this gets to the point, right? Now the point in what we are saying is this. this is just review. We have such a great high priest. Again, don't want to miss that, who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent. That the Lord set up, not man. Very interesting. So originally, God tells Moses, set up a tent. And then the true tent is set in the very presence of God. As you go along, you understand verse 8. That the Holy Spirit's the one that set all this in motion. We know that it was symbolic. We know that it would come a time, according to verse 10, that there would be a reformation, a change. And that there were limitations to this in verse 9. There were symbols. And according to this, it says, gifts and sacrifices are offered cannot, what? Perfect the conscience of the whisperer. Man, am I glad that I don't have to bear a guilty conscience because my sins have been dealt with. But the old covenant had no capacity to do that. And guess what? Our version of the old covenant, which is just legalism, okay, whatever version we're trying to, to peddle, it doesn't deal with our conscience either. Our conscience is only soothed by the reality of the gospel. It's the gospel that brings forgiveness. It's the gospel that brings healing. It's the gospel that brings hope. Don't put your trust in what man gives us, put your trust in what God has given us here. Now, I told you we'll get to application. Here's the, here's the application okay, of these first 10 verses. Obviously, he's comparing the old and the new covenant, okay? Number one, the new covenant gives us boldness in the gospel. Paul speaks to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 3.16, and he says, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Go back and read all of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It's about ministering in the new covenant. And he's saying, when you read the Old Covenant, it doesn't do anything. But when you turn to the New Covenant and the Gospel, it takes the veil away. That gives us boldness to speak the Gospel into our own lives and as the primary tool for ministry in those that we minister to. Whether that's in our home, in our neighborhoods, in our ministry, ministry arenas, in our churches, in our schools. It's the gospel that we point towards, and New Covenant gives us boldness. Secondly, the New Covenant makes worship both corporately and personally new. What do I mean by that? Well, 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price most of you know this so glorify God in your body now bring this full circle it's 2024 so I got to say one more thing about resolutions you want to resolve to do one thing just beyond being in the word here's what the knowledge of being in the word will result in that you will never do something to your body that would dishonor Christ why because we don't go to a tabernacle to worship anymore we have christ and part of having christ is that yes we worship corporately together that's hebrews 10 24 and we don't want to ever come to a place of not being together but we also worship personally in how we act here so what i take into my mind, what I put into my body, what I do or don't do, that's all an act of worship. Now, all of us could probably stand to think through, what does that look like for my life in 2024? Are there some changes that I need to make so that I will worship in the right way, corporately and personally, so the truth of the fact that I am a temple, okay? I'm not a temple, okay, in the sense of a, a physical building that has a holy place and a holy of holies. No, that, that's all gone. I have Jesus, and Jesus is in my heart, in my life. I can't answer that for you, but that's the practical theology part of it, to say, oh, wow, that's, that's revolutionary. I don't do that out of guilt, I'm compelled to act in a worshipful way, whether it's coming together with the body of Christ, or even in how I act personally and individually. Worship team's gonna come and we're gonna sing the last song. There is a fountain filled with blood. This is an old hymn, okay? Might be familiar to some of you, might not. Uh, what I want you to think about is this is that it's only through the blood of Christ which he inaugurated in the new covenant, the new promise that we can find true meaning in life, whether that's this year, next year, the year after, 10 years from now, 100 years from now, and on into eternity. Alistair Begg says, Jesus is the one who ultimately and finally explains to us the story of our lives. And that story is saturated in the blood of Jesus, because it's in his blood that we have true hope. It's in his blood that we glory in his sacrifice. God bless you in 2024.